Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Norquist. We have an amazing show lined up today, a conversation with Dr. Kevin Weddle, Professor of Military Theory and Strategy at the Army War College, to discuss the Saratoga Campaign in the Revolutionary War. Dr. Weddle graduated from the U.S. Military Academy and served over 28 years on active duty. He is a veteran of Operations Desert Storm and Enduring Freedom and retired as a colonel. He earned his PhD here at Princeton in political theory, and in 2019, we were lucky enough to host him here at the Madison Program as our William L. Garwood Visiting Professor. Today, we're chatting about his book, The Complete Victory, Saratoga and the American Revolution, which was recently awarded the prestigious 2021 Gilder Lerman Military History Prize, honoring the best book on military history published during the previous calendar year. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and give us a review. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and find out more about what we do at jmp.princeton.edu. Kevin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So just to start off at the very, very beginning with kind of the backdrop here, um, when the American colonies rebelled, uh, they were confronting a humongous and powerful and extremely populous empire. Um, And I'm coming from more of an ancient history background. And so I had always thought from my knowledge of colonial history that the reason that we were able to break away from Britain maybe had something to do with them either not caring so much about us or not being the highest priority for them. Um, But when you open your book, you open with a really interesting account about how the British general public actually was really interested and very carefully watching the war in America. Uh, So what were the factors um, that made this a fair fight? Uh, What was the British mood about the Revolutionary War? Uh, You probably don't want to get into all the causes of the war and all that. But... um... Certainly by the, you know, when all the crises came to a head and you had Lexington and Concord uh, and, and and actual bloodshed started occurring, then, you know, the, that concentrated the mind, of course, uh, of Great Britain. And you had, it's interesting, you had, you, you did have, though, some factions in Britain who were very pro-America and actually pro-independence for America. And then you had other other factions who were anti-war. They just didn't want a war. They just mm-hmm. didn't think it was worth fighting a war over uh, over the colonies. And then, of course, you had the hardcore folks who were who were clearly the majority, uh, at least early on in the war, and led by the king, of course. The king was very adamant about not allowing independence. So it was up to the, the brand-new United States um, to... Uh, to win militarily, which was going to be a very, very difficult thing. You know, if you were to take a, a you know Excel spreadsheet and you were to line up all the assets of Great Britain versus the assets of of the new brand new United States, it's very clear that yeah. you know Great Britain had the had the majority of the um, uh, of the assets, the physical assets, the money, the troops, the uh, just about everything, naval power, uh, which of course we didn't have anything. Um, and all of that, commerce and, you know, anything you can think of. Um, but, um, you know, war, as I, if I've learned nothing else in, in my time teaching at the Army War College and, and having a 30-year career in the Army, uh, it is, you know, wars aren't won just by Excel spreadsheets. They're mm-hmm. won by having, you know, will, 
uh, all of those moral factors, clause what's called the moral factors. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, will uh, and things like that. And of course, also very, very important leadership and also very important is strategy, coming up with the right strategy in order to actually accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And the British have a very, very difficult task. Um, they have a fairly small army. Uh, they have a very powerful navy, but they have a very small army. Uh, and you know, if you're going to try to subdue these these very disparate colonies, uh, now states. If you're going to have to subdue that over vast distances, uh, very different different than fighting in Europe, mainland Europe, um, much of that territory is wilderness. So if you're going to have to actually try to to um, to put down this rebellion, it's going to be very very difficult militarily, and that's there. So so they're faced with a very very difficult task. Uh, for the Americans, of course, uh, it's a it's a different task. It's a it's a task of fighting off these military incursions. And as, as Washington figures out fairly early on in the war, um, fighting them toe-to-toe -to -toe is very, very difficult. And probably the way you're going to win or the best chance for the Americans to win is for, and, and Washington adopts this, this so-called modified Fabian strategy in which he's going to maintain the army and and uh, avoid major pitch battles unless he's got an advantage. Uh, so Washington is going to pursue that strategy really for the rest of the war from late 1776 to the rest of the war. Uh, but the Brits are going to Brits have a much more difficult task. And of course, I talk about that uh, at length in the book about how they develop their strategy and try to execute it. And so your book is focused really on one particular battle, the Battle of Saratoga. Um, and it's a huge topic. You have a long book about it. But if we just yeah. kind of distill the bird's eye view here, looking at it both from the American and the British side, what was the strategic objective? What was the plan? And just sort of broadly as an introduction before we get into the details, what wound up actually happening? Right. Well, just to, just to um, uh, I mean, correct the record for a second, it's, it's not about the Battle of Saratoga. It's the whole campaign right. of Saratoga. Right. So, um, Saratoga, it's sort of a shorthand. People talk about the Battle of Saratoga, and what they're really talking about is the final two big battles of the campaign. But the campaign lasts over five months, and it includes 10 battles and engagements and all sorts of different uh, military operations. So it's a very complex, uh, multifaceted campaign. A lot of things are going on at once, which is part of the challenge of the book, is trying right. to hopefully keep the reader engaged and not confuse the reader very much because so many things are happening all at once. But, but just very quickly, um, the, the, at the end of 1776, early 1777, the British realized that what they had, the strategy they had been pursuing was really not going to work. And they needed to come up with something new for 1777. And the King desperately wanted to end the war in 1777. So, uh, General John Burgoyne, who happened to be in London at the time, presented a plan, a very complex, imaginative plan, that called for basically three columns, two coming down from Canada, another one coming, the main British Army coming up from New York, uh, up the Hudson River Valley, all of them meeting at Albany. And the idea was uh, that they would split the colonies in half. Um, now the brand new states, but to, of course to them it's still the colonies, split the colonies in half. And what they figured was 
they would they would isolate the more rebellious uh, New England colonies away from what they thought were the less rebellious middle colonies, southern colonies. They thought there were much more loyalist sentiment in those in those colonies. So they would split them in half, and then ultimately, you know, New England would die on the vine, and um, all would be good. The rest of the the rest of the country would certainly the rest of the colonies would certainly come back to uh, mother mother England. Um, so that's Burgoyne's plan. But Burgoyne wasn't the commander in chief. The commander in chief in North America is General Sir William Howe. He's sitting there in uh, in New York City, and he had a different plan. His idea was, look, uh, the only way we're going to win this war is to defeat Washington and his army. He he recognized Washington and his army as the center of gravity of the American Revolution. So his his idea was, I'm going to take my army, my big army here in New York. I'm not going to go up the Hudson River. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Philadelphia, the uh, sort of nominal capital of the rebellion, uh, and that will force Washington to come out, defend the capital, and and I can have my big decisive victory, and I will I will defeat Washington. I'll defeat the army, win the war. So you have these two competing plans, basically, and it was up to the leadership in Great Britain, the political leadership in Great Britain, mainly King, the King and Lord George Germain, who was Secretary of State for the Colonies, the man who was really responsible for managing the war in North America. It was up to them to kind of come up with, you know, a logical plan. Do I do I pick one of the one or the two? Do I pick Burgoyne's plan? Do I pick Howe's plan? Or do I come up with some sort of a, you know, combined operation, a combined strategy that's that's fully coordinated. Unfortunately for the British, um, they don't do any of those things. Instead, they they basically approve Burgoyne's plan. They also approve Howe's plan. Uh, and because of delays in, in messages going back and forth, there's all sorts of lack of coordination and misunderstandings and confusion. Um, and basically, instead of coming up with one coherent military strategy that's going to end the war in 1777, they end up with two totally uncoordinated strategies mm-hmm. operating almost at cross purposes. Um, and so um, so what, what I argue in the book is almost everything that happens in the Saratoga campaign can be traced to this faulty British strategy mm-hmm. uh, that they embark on in 1777. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because one of the questions I was going to follow up with, I mean, if this battle were like a Greek tragedy, say, like what would the <laughs> point of no return have been? Right. Like what the point where the, the British were just the balls rolling down the hill, you're not going to fix it. So would I guess then your answer be the point at which Burgoyne's and Howe's strategy were both pursued at the same time or? Yeah, in part, uh, but also, you know, even a you know, there's a there's a kind of a famous uh, military saying that even the best tactics can't overcome a mm. bad strategy. I fully, you know, I absolutely mm. agree with that. But um, a poor strategy that's executed vigorously mm. uh, can at least produce some good effects. Uh, unfortunately, Burgoyne was not the guy to do that. <laughs> and so, um, you know, his conduct of this bad strategy was pretty dismal. Um, he starts out with a great success. He he seizes Fort Ticonderoga from the Americans almost bloodlessly just in a, in a few days, um, which he thought going into the campaign that that would be his toughest, uh, uh, the toughest part of the campaign, seizing Fort Ticonderoga. 
which is, of course, the famous, it was called the Gibraltar of North America. Mm. It, it guarded the famous uh, um, invasion route from Canada going south on Lake Champlain and Lake George and then the Hudson mm. River Valley. Uh, so it guarded the approaches to uh, the Hudson River Valley. So uh, anyone wanting to come down from Canada had to take for Ticonderoga. So he thought that would be the toughest part. He takes it just in a couple of days, no problem. And then I think that feeds into his hubris and his, mm -hmm. his overconfidence. And so he just kind of lollygags the rest of the campaign, um, moving very, very slowly. He's not aggressive at all. Um, very much unlike the dashing cavalryman, which is what he was. He, he's, mm -hmm. a, he's a career cavalry officer. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, he, he does not do a good job. And as you said, you know, this, this whole Greek tragedy thing, you see him moving farther, farther south, deeper, deeper into America with no support, uh, whatever, uh, having all this, these logistical problems. And instead of, instead of, um, doing the logical thing, which is once you dig so deeply, it's time to, you know, Time to cut your losses and maybe fall back and save the army. Instead, he continues and goes deeper and deeper and deeper until he's finally, um, uh, you know, finally forced to surrender outside Saratoga. Yeah, I mean, Burgoyne is such an interesting character in your book. He is. Um, and yeah. I one of the parts about him that stuck out most to me is the very, very end where he eventually loses loses the battle. The campaign is a failure, and he has all these letters with just heaps and heaps of excuses, blaming basically everyone but himself. Yeah. Um, and obviously that reflects badly on anyone, but as you point out, it's also the case that the plan he was trying to execute in the first place was extremely difficult. So I guess if we are in his shoes and we have to assign blame, um, how much of the loss do you think was the result of Burgoyne's original plan versus his tactics, versus the instructions that he was actually given from higher command along the way? Yeah, great, great. All those are great questions. Um, I think, you know, uh, if you're looking at kind of the big picture, why did they lose the campaign? Um, uh, why was the campaign such a problem, so, such a faulty thing, their mm -hmm. strategy? Uh, you've got to blame that, I think, largely on the king and Lord Germain. Uh, because it was their job, mainly Lord Germain's job, to coordinate these strategies, and he doesn't do it. And part of that, I think, is his total uh, misunderstanding of what it took to campaign in North America. Hmm. He's a former general. He served uh, in, the, uh, in the Seven Years' War on the continent. I mean, he, he was fighting the French um, um, on the continent of Europe. He was not in North America. Uh, he's never been to North America. He doesn't. He doesn't know all the challenges of fighting in North America, where the distances are immense, uh, and the terrain is very, very difficult. There's very few towns. There's very few settlements. It's hard to to live off the land, um, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so when he's saying things like uh, he tell he he approves Burgoyne's plan, and then he also approves Howe's plan, and then. He tells how, oh, by the way, once you finish up in Philadelphia, then you need to go help Burgoyne. Well, there's no way that was going to happen mm -hmm. uh, because of time, distance, and all those other things. So I think the the blame for the overall campaign is, is Germain's and the king, who is an enthusiastic supporter. Mm -hmm. uh, but the blame for the loss of the army, I think that's all on Burgoyne. Because mm -hmm. here's a senior officer... Um, 
Now, this is his first independent command, which is unusual for a, an officer of his rank. But um, still, he's a senior officer. He's um, uh, He will argue later that he had no choice. He had to continue um, driving toward Albany because that was in his orders. Well, um, mm -hmm. a senior officer has to know that um, you can't be shackled to orders that were written five and a half months before, mm. 3,000 miles away, when circumstances will change, ultimately. And they do. Mm. Um, and as he continues farther and farther south, he runs into more and more problems. Um, a senior officer, has to one who, one who is operating by himself, uh, has to make these key decisions. And one of those key decisions is, um, I think, especially after the Battle of Bennington, is I've got to save the Army. I mean, that is number that is job one. Uh, I can't risk this army. There are only two major field armies mm. that the British have in North America. One is Burgoyne's and one is Howe's. And Howe ends up losing one of the two. Right. Uh, not good. So I blame the, the big picture blame. I think there's a lot of blame to go around, but mainly <laughs> Germain and, and the king. Uh, but, the, but the blame for losing that army, uh, that's on Burgoyne. Yes. Mm. And so if we look at it, we've focused pretty intensively on the British side. But if you look yeah. at the American side, what was actually at stake for us in this campaign? I mean, was it the case that whichever side won the battle was going to have the upper hand in the war? Or was it the case that one side just had a lot more to lose than the other? Well, I think I think the British actually had more to lose in all this mm. because even had they succeeded, so even if Burgoyne had somehow made it all the way down to Albany, even if Howe had, once he seized Philadelphia, and then he helps, you know, he goes up the Hudson River, even assuming he could make it all the way up to Albany, even had they done all that and succeeded in, in the campaign's aims, I, I don't think that would have led to uh, an overall victory at mm -hmm. all. Uh, number one, there was no way they were going to be able to totally isolate New England from mm. the rest of the colonies. There was no way they were going to be able to control the entire Hudson River Valley with the amount of troops they had. They didn't have, you know, they these armies aren't huge by mm. modern standards at all. Uh, so the thought of actually controlling the entire length of the Hudson River from from Albany all the way down to uh, to New York is was a pipe dream. There was no way they were going to do that. So so I think even had that even had they executed exactly according to Burgoyne's plan, um, yeah, it would have been a setback for the Americans, but it wouldn't have been a fatal setback. I really don't think so. I think Howe had the right idea. The right idea was track down and destroy Washington and his army. They had, after the battles of Trenton and Princeton in late 76, early 77, uh, after those two battles, um, basically, General Washington had turned the Continental Army into that kind of living symbol of the of the revolution, almost like, uh, you know, if you were to make a comparison, almost like uh, what Robert E. Lee had done with the Army of Northern Virginia mm -hmm. in the American Civil War. Um, everybody knew in the American Civil War, the war wasn't going to be over till you beat Lee. And and Washington had done the same thing with the Continental Army, the main Continental Army. And I think so. I think Howe absolutely had the right idea. It was just it was just very difficult to track down Washington and 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 do that. It sounds to me when you say that, like 
the British were just kind of incompetent, you know, from the top down. And maybe in some way, this was more of a British loss than an American victory. So I guess my follow-up would be, what did the Americans do right? Was there an element where the Americans kind of had to rise to the challenge in this battle? Yeah, and it's, um, that's, that's again, a, a great question. And I, I think, um, you know, the Americans did a lot of things right. Now, they had their problems, too. They had personality issues, just like the British had. We didn't even talk about that with the Brits. They have bad <laughs> strategy. They have generals who hate each other. They all hate, you know, Lord Germain. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just really poisonous situation. Um, the Americans aren't perfect. They have their personality issues mm -hmm. there as well. You had Gates versus Schuyler. Gates isn't getting along with uh, General Gates isn't getting along with uh, Washington. I mean, you had all sorts of issues there. But the Americans overcome these challenges. And I think the the thing that um, the reason why the Americans end up winning uh, this campaign is is superior leadership. Mm. Um, Schuyler does a good job early on, even though his messages back to Congress and Washington don't indicate that at all. It indicates a guy who's almost on a verge of a nervous breakdown. So mm -hmm. Schuyler is the main American commander up in the in the Northern Department. Uh, so he's the one mainly facing Burgoyne as Burgoyne's coming south. He's replaced by Gates, who um, whose skill set fit perfectly in the situation mm -hmm. that he was handed uh, when Schuyler is relieved of his command. And Washington, who's almost the the forgotten man of the mm -hmm. Saratoga campaign, you'll you'll read almost nothing about him in most books about Saratoga. Uh, Washington plays a huge role as the commander in chief um, by uh, making sure that the the Northern Department gets as many assets as they as they need, as many assets as he can possibly uh, afford to send them. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing he sends them are top notch leaders, people like Benedict Arnold and General Benjamin Lincoln, uh, uh, some other key leaders, uh, uh, Colonel Daniel Morgan's rifleman. Um, all of these things that he does to help make sure that the Northern Army is, you know, ready to to uh, to defend uh, against Burgoyne's advance. Yeah, and I'm happy you brought up Washington because that is one of the really interesting things that your book does is bring out everything that Washington did for the campaign. I think it really says a lot about his stature as a leader that he was even the things that he doesn't get credit for. You know, he was right. so involved and helping with. One last question down this particular line of inquiry, um, because I there are a couple of things you said that I want to return to, um, but the Battle of Saratoga was preceded, as you kind of alluded to earlier, uh, by the Battle of Ticonderoga, which was a huge and unexpected American loss. And so why is it that Saratoga wound up being this turning point in the war and a huge help uh, to the American side, but that Ticonderoga was not? Why, why weren't those two kind of parallel? Right. Um, be, I think because most people, to include the French, which was, of course, the, the ones that we really desperately wanted to come into, mm. into the war on our side, uh, because I think the French recognized that the seizure of Ticonderoga, while not good, uh, and they were certainly, they, it made them sit up and take notice uh, in Paris, and it was a it was a devastating blow to the American diplomatic team led by Benjamin uh, uh, Franklin mm -hmm. uh, in Paris uh, when they got the news about Ticonderoga. 
Um, they realized that that was just one step, that just seizing Ticonderoga in and of itself wasn't going to lead to any great, you know, mm -hmm. thundering victory. It would have to, it would have to be followed up by something, you know, more important. And so I think most of them recognized that although a blow, it wasn't necessarily a fatal blow. Mm. Um, but the loss, of course, of a complete British army, that's another thing entirely. Yeah. That's 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 exponentially more important. And so when that happened, you know, the French recognized that, hey, these these Americans, I mean, they were waiting for a victory like that. Mm. Uh, they were waiting. Trenton and Princeton, that was all good things. But those were actually just small raids in the big mm. scheme of things. But actually capturing an entire British army led by a British lieutenant mm. general, um, that's a big deal. And, and when, when that happens, the French really sit up and take notice. And when the news arrives in Paris on the 4th of December, 1777, uh, just a couple days after that, the, the French reopened negotiations um, that led directly to the, to the alliance, the, the outright alliance uh, with the French. Um, and because now, you know, Americans have proven that they've got staying power. They've got, mm -hmm. they've got, uh, they've got an army, uh, a military system that can at least, at least in these circumstances, um, uh, you know, fight, fight a major British, um, professional army to a standstill, in fact, defeat them. Mm. So bit of a pivot here, but Benedict Arnold, um, someone who yeah. I have never heard anyone say anything nice about ever in any circumstance my entire <laughs> life until I read your book. <laughs> um, but he goes down as this villain in, in American history. Right. Uh, but it seems rightfully so. Right. And it but it seems that in Saratoga or the campaign of Saratoga, he was extremely helpful and a big asset to the American side. Uh, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about his role. And is there some way that we can kind of contextualize his eventual turn? Sure. Well, you know, remember, this happens, what, two years before his treason. So, you know, that's mm -hmm. still that's still in the future. So but he's he is a difficult guy. I mean, he is um, he's probably Washington's best, most dynamic combat commander i mean if you want to you want somebody to lead you into combat mm. benedict arnold is your guy and he's proven himself over and over and over again um uh up till the saratoga campaign but he he's very um so he's you know this dynamic aggressive guy but he's also very um uh you know he's got this titanic ego he he mm. needs to be stroked a lot uh, and he doesn't think he's gotten his due up to this mm -hmm. point. And so when Washington asks him to go north uh, to uh, to help bolster the, the northern army, uh, he reluctantly agrees. Um, uh, but Washington, you know, appeals to his patriotism, saying, I really need you up there. Uh, and he goes up there and he does, as he almost always does, does brilliantly from the time he shows up. He provides that that steel and Schuyler's backbone that he needs. Um, uh, and, and he really does a great job throughout the entire campaign. Now, mm. when Schuyler is relieved and Gates takes over, Arnold is happy about that because Gates and Arnold had served together earlier in the war and they had done very well. In fact, Gates had, uh, had defended Arnold. Um, because of Arnold's prickly personality, a lot of people didn't like him. A lot of people mm. didn't like serving under him and with him. And so Gates came to uh, Arnold's defense. So they they got along pretty well. 
the problem was um, uh, they have a they have a bit of a falling out uh, because as Burgoyne continues to far, go farther and farther south, um, uh, Arnold is counseling Gates. Okay, let's go, let's go. They're you know they're weakened. Let's you know let's attack, let's attack. And Gates is this very defensive minded guy, and he's saying, nope, we're going to dig in. We'll let them come to us. Mm-hmm. And this is not the way Arnold likes to fight at all. Um, and then after the first battle of Saratoga, the so-called Battle of Freeman's Farm that takes place on the 19th of September, um, when Gates writes his after-action report about the battle back to Congress, uh, Arnold feels that his men ha- didn't get enough credit in this report, and they have a they have a falling out, a bitter falling out, um, mm-hmm. almost a childish. Well, it is a childish falling out between these two key American generals. Um, it started with a shouting match of obscenities at each other, uh, and then degenerated into this war of letters. Even though their mm-hmm. their, their headquarters are half a mile apart, they don't speak to each other for almost two weeks. They just send letters back and forth that are increasingly childish uh, and and almost ridiculous. For the good of the cause, we know that they got you know somehow they reconciled, and by the time the second battle of Saratoga takes place on the seventh of uh, 7th of October, 1777, they're working well together again. So Arnold is this very, very key guy. He he um, stages the final main attack that basically wins the Second Battle of Saratoga, personally leading men into the German fortifications where he's seriously wounded. Uh, so just just really brave guy. Um, his, his leg wound, but to I'm sorry, it's a long involved answer. Oh, not at all. Getting back to your original question, you know, how does, <laughs> does this kind of pre preview his his later treason? Mm-hmm. Um, he once again after Saratoga doesn't feel like he's gotten enough credit, even though Washington makes sure that his major general commission is backdated, so he's senior to some other generals, which was his main complaint early on. Um, even that doesn't mollify him at all. And he becomes probably, you know, he's also laid up for many, many months because of his his really serious leg wound um, that he suffers in the Second Battle of Saratoga. And I think he just gets bitter and bitter and bitter and more bitter. Again, mm-hmm. doesn't feel like he's he's gotten enough credit, even though Washington is, is um, you know, he's one of Washington's favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't feel like he's gotten enough credit. And I think this this bitterness just increases and increases. He also marries, uh, remarries uh, a young woman who uh, has some British connections. Mm-hmm. And that's going to, I think, feed into this too. And I think she fed into the bitterness that he he felt about um, about not getting enough credit. And and that that's all gonna, you know, ultimately end up, you know, with his um his treason where he tries to basically sell West Point to uh, to General Howe, or well, it'll be actually General Clinton by that time. Interesting. And so to pick on another slightly, yeah, controversial or thorny topic, um, I was really interested in the way that your book discussed Native American involvement. Mm. So just to start off there, what was their strategic role? Yeah, they play a they play a large role. Um, most Native American uh, tribes uh, were allied with the British. Uh, both sides court them 
extensively uh, in the war, trying to get them to, to if not go over on, on their respective sides, but at least be neutral. Uh, but the you know most of the, these Native American uh, uh, nations they they do not see anything neutral about what's going on because mm-hmm. they're concerned about increased American um, expansion westward uh, into more and more Native American lands. They're very concerned about that. The British have promised them that we're not going to allow the Americans if we win this bat this war. We're not going to allow the Americans to go any farther west. And so that's mm-hmm. why most. Native Americans will side with the Brits. Not all. Um, the Tuscarora and uh, Oneida uh, Indians will uh, will support the the Patriots. Most most of them have been Christianized, um, mm-hmm. and so they they tend to support the Americans. But the vast majority of Native Americans do not support uh, American independence. So they're going to be used by both sides. Um, uh, they're going to play a, a very large role in Burgoyne's campaign and also one of his other columns, the one that's um, uh, his supporting column, that's their mission is to go down the Mohawk River uh, to Albany and there meet Burgoyne. Uh, remember I said there were three converging columns. Um, so they're going to play very large roles. Uh, Burgoyne goes into this campaign wanting at least a 1,000 uh, warriors on his uh as part of his team, he gets only about 500. The problem with um, the the Native American way of war is is several fold. Mm. Um, one, they're very very you know they're very very independent and they want to fight their own way. Uh, the the Native American way of war is not the European way of war, so there's mm. going to be all sorts of conflict there. Uh, the British are going to try to force them to fight the way they do. In other words, you know, not taking scalps, uh, not, you know, not killing prisoners. I mean, there's all sorts of things that's part of the Native American way of war, but is not part of the British way of war. So the 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 Native Americans are going to chafe at those restrictions. They also come into this campaign wanting to, and it's part again part of the Native American way of war. Uh, to to um, seize booty and loot and and you know treasure basically from from this campaign, not only helping the British but also helping themselves. And they find early on that they're really not because Burgoyne is moving so slowly. They're they're really finding that they're not getting you know what they really wanted to get out of the campaign. And then they also can't take high casualties. Uh, these are very small. These these you know Indian uh, Native American nations are very very small. Their number of warriors are smaller still, and so they can't take heavy casualties. And the Native American war and the Native American ways of war, they don't fight these huge battles where they lose you know high casualties. They can't mm-hmm. afford that. And so, um, especially in that supporting column that's supposed to come down the Mohawk River. Um, they fight one big battle out there that's part of the Saratoga campaign, the Battle of Oriskany, where they take very heavy casualties. And that's going to basically um, cause them to desert and and leave their British (coughs) allies. They're also very astute on how they think things are going to turn out. And so after the Battle of Bennington, where Burgoyne loses almost 1,000 men uh, at the Battle of Bennington, uh, his Native Americans are... You know, they look around and they go, hmm, this this looks like, a, you know, basically looks like we're on the Titanic. It's time to leave. 
and the vast majority of them desert after the Battle of Bennington, which is going to leave Burgoyne without his Native Americans. Now, they're very important for him because they act almost like you would use cavalry in mm -hmm. Europe. They scout, uh, they screen uh, the army from the prying eyes of American scouts. Um, they'll conduct raids for you. They'll gather intelligence. They, they can do all those different things. And once they desert, uh, Burgoyne is left. Basically, he's an army without eyes. Mm. <laughs> and so he's he's sort of blundering along as he continues farther south. And and because because he's lost those Native Americans, the, the Americans, uh, the Patriot uh, forces now have a, you know, they know exactly what Burgoyne is doing almost all the time. They know his exact size, uh, the size of his forces, how many people are deserting. We're able to figure all that stuff out very, very easily uh, once he loses his Indian allies. So they're a big deal uh, in this campaign. It's really interesting to me that that they chose to fight for the British in the first place. You already touched a little bit on it. I think for most Americans, it's intuitive that like America's fighting for liberty and that would be a cause more amenable to native peoples. Um, but as you pointed out, it's not the way the battle lines were drawn. I want to pick yeah. a little bit on one of the details, uh, which you mentioned, which is that um, the more Christianized Indians wound up siding with the Americans. What what was the motivation behind that? That's a very interesting detail. I you know I'm not an expert on this this particular area of uh, American history, but uh, you know my understanding is is those two uh, Indian nations in particular had had um, really you know really uh, you know intermarried with a lot of Americans. Mm -hmm. Again, they had become Christianized. Not as it not it's not as if other you know, Native American or elements of other Native American nations had not been. Uh, but but because of that, because they had developed these kinship networks and these, you know, um, uh, commerce networks with uh, with Americans, the, the patriots, uh, as, as opposed to, uh, you know, the British and the French up in in Canada, primarily, uh, they had, you know, they had the affinity uh, with the American cause. And so they they fought. Uh, uh, very well. In fact, they were very important. They were instrumental in um, uh, in the Americans uh, ultimately hanging on at the Battle of Oriskany, which was almost a, a wipeout um, of the of an American force. And they also did a did a good job for Gates um, uh, at Saratoga as well, even though they only had very small numbers there. Hmm. So I guess we've talked a lot about the broad strategy. Just to ask <clears throat> maybe one or two questions about the actual kind of experience on the ground here. Um, you know, looking at like the experience of fighting during colonial times, one of the things that you see sometimes people discuss are which era would it be like best to fight in, for instance, and people would say like <laughs> medieval era or civil war, or I've heard World War One put out there. To me, that seems insane, but some people say it. Um, <laughs> but um, I guess with that kind of frame, what are the big advantages or disadvantages um, to fighting during the revolutionary period? Like what do the casualties look like as compared to earlier or later eras or like general quality of life for soldiers? Yeah. Um... Of course, as you know uh, uh, from your history background, it's 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 hard to compare yeah. eras. You know, it's almost apples and oranges. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, in in the American Revolution, casualties tended to be 
certainly a lot lower than you see, say, in the American Civil War. Um, that that's primarily due to the weaponry. Mm -hmm. uh, the the tactics are you know the weaponry of the time of the um, uh, American Revolution are smoothbore muskets, uh, which means they were very inaccurate. Uh, mm -hmm. So a smoothbore musket, I mean, you're you're going to be lucky to hit a target, a man-sized target that's fifty yards away. You're going to be very lucky. And so the the what they really wanted to do was they wanted to have a that's why you see all the volley fire that takes place in the American revolutions. The idea was to get a the the massive amount of lead downrange mm. uh, to cause the 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 most damage to an enemy formation. So um, so consequently you had you had fighting that was fairly close because you had to get fairly close in order mm. for those smoothbore muskets to have any effect at all. And then, um, and then, of course, you would use the bayonet as well, which which meant you know close quarters mm -hmm. combat. Um, you you see that uh, in the Saratoga campaign at um, during both uh, major battles at the end of the at the end of the campaign. You see it at the Battle of Oriskany as well, uh, because that was an ambush. So that was very very close quarters uh, combat. There, it's very horrific. I mean, that was that was a horrific battle, uh, which was well often hand to hand and no quarter given um, uh, during that during that absolutely horrific battle. Um, so, you know, if you were to say, you know, uh, would I want to be at, you know, where would I want to fight? I certainly wouldn't have wanted to be at the Battle of Oriskany uh, <laughs> at all. Um, and the the other battles of Saratoga, they were, um, again, they would they they could be very close quarter. They could be very mm. nasty uh, combat. And of course, if you get hit by you know these these big lead you know musket balls, even though they're not traveling at at super high you know velocity, uh, they do incredible amounts of damage. And then with the medical support at as it was at the time, um, it was they were just horrific. Uh, one of the one of the uh, the probably the best British general uh, during the Saratoga campaign, uh, Brigadier General Simon Fraser, uh, who was sort of their Benedict Arnold in that he was, you know, very dynamic. The troops loved him. He was a, a lead from the front kind of guy. Um, he struck uh, in the abdomen by a by a musket ball uh, in the Second Battle of Saratoga and dies in horrible agony the next day. I mean, here's a guy who. Um, modern medical techniques he would have certainly survived uh, his mm -hmm. wounds uh but but yet you know they lose this this really outstanding general the next day so you know the 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 soldiers you know i, I think again you know you can't it's hard to compare it's it's bad in any fighting is bad no matter what <laughs> uh, it, it's it's horrific no matter what especially infantry combat uh is is horrible um, but these soldiers, uh, it, it's interesting. The, it was, it was hard on them. Um, especially this particular summer, the summer of 1777, it was hot, it was very humid and it was very rainy. And so by the time they get, by the time these poor British soldiers, you know, we think of them as the, you know, these are regulars, these are, you know, these, these very professional sorts of guys, by the time they get to Saratoga, their tents are literally rotting away. Mm. 
because of what they've gone through over the course of, and their uniforms are as well. I mean, these, these are guys who are exhausted. Um, they talk about, you, you read the accounts of these soldiers and they talk about the swarms of insects. Mm. I mean, these are things they didn't see in Europe. They didn't, they didn't experience that in Europe and here in, you know, I don't know if you've ever taken a vacation in uh, you know, upstate New York in the summertime and the black flies and the mosquitoes and, that's what these guys were going through and they had no, you know, mosquito netting and mm. off, you know, and, and things, you know, mosquito repellent and things like that. And that's, that's what they were, that's what they were dealing with. So the, you know, the, the life of a soldier is, mm. is hard. Uh, and both sides, um, you know, both sides experienced uh, the same conditions, the same weather conditions, the same, you know, they had this essentially the same weaponry for the most part, although the British had a great advantage in artillery, but but that's really about it. Mm. So it's, the you know, the life of a soldier is very hard. It always is. It always has been. Uh, and it probably always will be. Anyone who's ever taken like even a tour of I'm from the D.C. area, a tour of Mount Vernon in the summer. It's just amazing that anyone could even live, uh, even live in this area, let alone fight in it just with the heat and the mosquitoes. And yeah. It's just not a hospitable climate. No, uh, uh, and you know the Europeans were, you know, some of the senior officers had served in the French and Indian War, mm. but but the rank and file had never seen anything like this uh, mm. in America, and especially again upstate New York, you know, going through the Lake Country up there with Lake Champlain and Lake George, and the you know all the the water everywhere, which of course breeds mosquitoes. And I mean, it's just they were, <laughs> it, it was hard on these guys, really yeah. hard. Um, so if we skip ahead a little bit, uh, skip to kind of the end of uh, end of the campaign, the Americans win the battle um, and the British surrender. I guess if you could give me like a quick overview for our listeners of what the significance was, did this battle lead directly to us winning the war? Uh, I, I think, you know, the way the way I look at it, it was. Um... It was a necessary but not sufficient hmm. action to win the war. I think there had to be a Saratoga-like victory. It didn't have to be Saratoga, but there had to be some sort of Saratoga-like victory to convince the French to come in on our side. Now, they had already been providing you know, covert aid and things like that, but to actually get the British hmm. to come over on our side overtly, uh, which would directly lead to what the British feared the most, which was a mm. widened war. Mm. Um, you had to have something like Saratoga. So even though Saratoga doesn't, you know, doesn't lead directly to independence and the war goes on for, you know, four more years until actually more than that, but until Yorktown, you know, the final battle, uh, it's another four years. So, um, it, but it was absolutely critical because we had to get the French in on our side. We had to widen the war. And in fact, once the French um, do come in on our side, and on the 6th of February, 1778, they, they signed the Treaty of Amity and Commerce and the Treaty of Alliance, um, the British almost immediately declare war on them after that. And now you've got, you've basically got uh, a world war because mm -hmm. now the Brits, instead of just fighting in North America, now you've got to protect your possessions in the West Indies, in the mm -hmm. East Indies, in the Mediterranean. You have to worry now about homeland security because what, a, you know, there's nothing that says the French can't try to invade um, 
Britain. Uh, so you have to you have to at least watch out for that. So you have to you have to have assets that are taking care of that. Um, now the Royal Navy, you know, they don't just have to worry about North America. They have now worldwide responsibilities that they're going to have to deal with. So all of a sudden, almost at a stroke of a pen on the 6th of February, 1778, um, you've got a world war uh, on your hands if you're Great Britain. Um, and, and now the American, the North America, the war in America almost becomes a secondary theater. Um, even though they, they, they still want to try to win it uh, and all that, uh, but, um, uh, but now they've got other places that they have to put their very limited assets uh, uh, they have to, uh, you know, devote their limited assets to all these other different things that they have to worry about. Now they didn't have to worry about before. And, um, you know, two years later, the Spain, uh, Spain comes in on our side as well. Uh, so that widens the war even more, uh, for the, for the Brits. So it's a huge, huge deal. Hmm. Uh, again, it didn't have to be Saratoga, but it had to be something like a Saratoga, uh, and, and just, I think just a pitched battle where we sort of, sort of could say we won, wouldn't have done it. It had to mm -hmm. be a big deal, like capturing an entire British army. It's so amazing to me when you say that, that it didn't have to be Saratoga specifically, but it had to be something like Saratoga. Just, it really emphasizes the craziness of this British plan that just put them right in the way of something like this happening and, and didn't really offer that much strategic advantage. It really boggles my mind, to be honest. Yeah. But, you know, of course, to be fair, um, and, and you, you have to say this about any any strategist, you know, they weren't trying to do anything stupid. You know, they they were trying. <laughs> they were trying. You know, I'm a huge Anglophile, which, you know, my, my hero is Winston Churchill. So uh, I think that helped me be as fair as I possibly yeah. could to the Brits. Um, in fact, there's probably more in my book about the Brits than there, than there is about the Americans. Um, and, and actually as a, as a military guy too, you know, I, <laughs> I found myself, um, being empathetic about the challenges <laughs> that they had. I mean, these were huge strategic challenges and trying to come up with a plan that would work was really, really hard. Uh, and so they weren't trying, you know, they were trying to do the right thing. It's just, um, you know, a, a bad uncoordinated strategy and probably not the right guy leading them. Uh, as well so yeah and I think that's a really good transition uh, to the final question which so there are many elements of course of warfare um, in the revolutionary era uh, that no longer hold true communication stands out to me as one of those yeah. where if anything it's too easy to communicate now uh, but was a humongous right. strategic barrier um, mm -hmm. at that time uh, but you know Despite that, what kind of lessons strategically can we draw from Saratoga today? Yeah, I think actually there's a lot of lessons we can draw mm -hmm. from Saratoga. Um, one of the most important, I think, is 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 the whole the whole idea of military strategy development. Mm -hmm. um, it's very very hard. You know, we the the definition of strategy is the calculated application of ways and means to achieve a military or political objective. That that sounds so easy. But if it was easy, we'd be a lot better at it. And we're, <laughs> we're not very good at it. Um, and, and so, you know, I think, you know, strategy is very hard. Um, you have to make sure when you're developing your strategy that, and, and we do this today, we, we make mistakes about it today, is that it's fully coordinated. Everybody understands it. 
and it's leading to, mm. you know, it's leading to something that makes sense, right? It's leading to something that is going to lead to victory, if not victory itself. It's got to lead toward a clearly defined, decisive objective. This they didn't do. Mm. Um, the other thing you have to do is make sure that when you when you're developing your strategy and you come up with assumptions about your strategy, which is fine, there's nothing wrong with with basing part of your strategy on assumptions because nobody has perfect knowledge, right? And certainly Burgoyne and Germain and Howe didn't have perfect knowledge. And so their strategies are always going to have some assumptions. And 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 Burgoyne. Burgoyne had assumptions. One of his assumptions was that he was going to get a thousand Indians to support him. He didn't get a thousand Indians. Mm. He thought that once he once he um, seized Ticonderoga and went deeper into New York, that loyalists in droves would come out to support the army. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of loyalists would come out and support him. That didn't happen. Mm. Um, probably not a bad assumption, but it didn't happen. Another assumption he had was um, he he left Canada not having enough logistics support. He did that knowingly, thinking that those loyalists would provide the difference, you know, that he, his shortages. None of those things came true. So again, there's nothing wrong with having a basing part of your strategy on assumptions, but you have to examine the assumptions very carefully, and you have to say to yourself. Okay, what happens if I don't get enough Indians? What happens if the loyalists don't come out in droves to help my army? What happens then? Um, and none of that was done mm. uh, uh, in the in the uh, British strategy making. They, you know, a lot of those, a lot of their decisions were made on assuming that good things will happen once we get to Albany. You know things like that. That's not that's not very good, um, and it's it's not to say that we're much better. Uh, we thought you know I go back to the Iraq War. We thought that oh as soon as we take Baghdad, good things will happen. Well, no, we took Baghdad really easily, and then bad things happened after we mm. took Baghdad. You know, th just just things like that. So I think the the biggest lesson we can learn from the Saratoga campaign is this whole strategy and doing it right and putting the putting the brain cells against strategy and not just making a lot of you know wild assumptions and not not examining them. And the other thing I think is the importance of leadership and especially um, you probably noticed since you read the book that you know the two big threads I think that. I tried to run through the book are strategy and leadership. And the other thing about leadership is it's so important, especially at the high level, uh, at the senior leaders level, to have good relationships with your peers and your superiors and your subordinates. <laughs> it's so important, especially at the high level. Um, it almost doesn't matter what the old organizational wiring diagram looks like, as long as you have good professional and personal relationships. I don't mean you have to, you know, socialize with the person, but you have to be have a good working professional and personal relationship with each other, and you have to work at it. You have to work, you, and you can't let it deteriorate. And and unfortunately for the British, um, a lot of those relationships, these personal and professional relationships, were were poisonous. 
which led to, mm. to problems with the British. The American side, again, it wasn't perfect, uh, but they were able to at least work through their, their problems. So I think strategy and leadership are the, the two big lessons that are universal. Um, doesn't matter what the era is. Um, doesn't matter that it, that it, this took place 250 years ago. Uh, I think there there's still really good lessons for us today. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. What a fantastic note to end on. Super interesting and always so thrilling to to discuss military history. It never ceases to excite. So thanks so much. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Dr. Kevin Weddle on the Saratoga Campaign and the American Revolution. I hope you learned as much from this discussion as I did. And of course, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. Thanks so much for joining us here on Madison's Notes. Mm -hmm.